Craig and I were just talking briefly uh, about how quickly, once again, it seems like this Christmas season is gone, how quickly the month of December is gone. It's hard to believe that today's the 23rd, tomorrow's Christmas Eve, and the next day is Christmas. I hope that you have prepared yourself uh, in every way, but particularly spiritually for that. And one of the things that uh, is always something that we do, and we add them all up uh, even before Thanksgiving, and that is putting up the Christmas tree. We have four, uh, but they're not real trees. Um, but uh, I hope that you've got your tree up by now. Last night we were, we were out doing some running around and saw a car that had the, the tree on top. And thought, well, they're just going now with their tree. And maybe some families still go by one of the ancient traditions of not decorating the tree until Christmas Eve. But I was decorated long before then. But I thought it was so interesting just to learn some things about Christmas trees. You know, we got, you can buy them at grocery stores, you can buy them at uh, Lowe's and Home Depot, and then there are different uh, tree farms and uh, locations around in the area and all that. But uh, here's some interesting things about real Christmas trees. Not all the fish ones, but real ones. Uh, the first recorded use of a, of a Christmas tree uh, was in, in the country of Latvia uh, as far back as 1510. Uh, the use of small candles to light the Christmas trees before electricity, obviously, dates back to uh, Martin Luther's giving credit for being the first to put uh, candles on trees. When did we start using electric lights on it? Well, it surprised me to learn that it was this far back. And Thomas Edison's assistant, Edward Johnson, came up with the idea for electric lights for the Christmas trees in 1882. Uh, I didn't think we were using electricity at that time, but obviously so. But Christmas tree lights began to be mass produced in 1890. Uh, there are approximately 350 million Christmas trees growing on uh, U.S. Christmas tree farms today. Approximately 100,000 people uh, are employed full or part-time in the Christmas tree industry. Last year, Americans bought uh, almost 31 million live Christmas trees uh, at the cost of about uh, a little over a million uh, dollars. Christmas trees are grown and harvested in all 50 states. Uh, that was interesting for me to learn that. Uh, 93% of all real Christmas tree consumers uh, recycle their trees in uh, many different recycling programs, and there are about 4,000 of those around the United States as well. Uh, here are three other facts about this that makes it uh, good that Christmas trees are grown. Growing Christmas trees provide a habitat for, wi for wildlife. Uh, Christmas trees can remove dust and pollen from the air, so they help us with that. And an acre of Christmas trees provides the daily oxygen requirements of 18 people. There are amazing facts about that. So when you look at your Christmas tree, if you've got a real one, make sure you keep it watered and make sure you turn the lights off when you leave and all of that. But well, we recognize that this is the time of year, of course, that um, Christmas trees come to the forefront of our thought. That's where, usually where we put, um, put our gifts under and, and all of that. And a little bit of history about it reminds us that they've been around for a long, long time. But I want us to think about another Christmas tree today, and that is uh, the family tree of Jesus Christ our Messiah. Now, some of you might be big into uh, Ancestry.com or Genealogy.com. Uh, one of our members was telling me after the 845 that he's traced it back about 5,000 people back in his family. And he even said that there were some windburns out on a far limb. And, you know, I said, they must be not in my family. I'm, we must not be related. But it's interesting. 
Uh, I think about that when I read family history. Every time I go to the three cemeteries that I'm responsible for putting flowers on, I always spend a little bit of time looking at the family markers. And some of them I knew and some of them I didn't know and always wonder what they were like. I read some of our family history and, you know, these people come to life. They, they, they are they're real people and their life was important and significant and they come to life. Well, there's something like that about also about the genealogy of Jesus Christ and His family tree. Because uh, uh, the genealogy back in that day was very, very important for the Jewish mindset. Because their uh, genealogy gave them legitimacy, identity, and established their significance. And that's why Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus as he begins his gospel presentation before he gets to verse 18 where the angel comes to Joseph when we read those familiar words. And I'll be honest that I'm one of the ones that I just kind of had a tendency always to, uh, to skip over these first 17 verses. I said, it'd be like reading the phone book. It's just names that begat and begat and begat was the father of and the father of and father of. And it would be boring. But to Matthew, he was writing to primarily a Jewish uh, audience. And I just said that the significance of genealogy for the Jewish people was it gave them legitimacy that they were of the Jewish race. Uh, identity, they found their identity there, and it also established their significance. And when you look at this genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of the Messiah, you find several of those things still at play there. You also find that the names are difficult to pronounce, and the list is just that, a list of names from Abraham to David and ending with Jesus. And, and the, the setup of it, the structure is so simple. So-and-so was the father, so-and-so, so-and-so was the father, so-and-so, uh, and all like that. And, you know, just to sit down and read that to me, I, you know, I, I just jumped over it all the time. So this time I spent some time uh, reading about this. And I reflected upon the fact that uh, if you're familiar with the King James translation, it doesn't use the words, was the father of so-and-so, but it said begat. You know, so uh, Abraham begat, and he, he begat in that. And it's the same root of the word used in the King James for John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You know, we're talking about bringing a child into this world. And so, uh, it reminds me of a story a little boy went home after the Sunday school uh, on Sunday morning and asked him, what did he learn in Sunday school? And he said, I learned all of the forgots. And so, what do you mean the forgots? He said, you know, all the forgots in the Bible, you know, like Abraham forgot Isaac and Isaac forgot Jacob and Jacob forgot Judah. Well, we're looking at the names of some people that we don't want to forget because there's significance to Jesus Christ giving him identity and giving him his significance in his life. And, and I'm not going to read all those 17 verses because I don't want to bore you with it. You can read that or try to read them on your, on your own, and I don't want to embarrass myself trying to pronounce some of these names. But I want you to hear verse 1 and then verse 17. It begins by saying, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that's interesting to note right there, and we'll talk about that, that that seems to be out of order, and it is for a reason. And then we end it with verse 17. Now, there were 14 generations in all. From Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to, to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Now, from that genealogy, uh, what can we learn? What do we need to notice? I think three things in particular. First of all, we need to notice the importance of this genealogy. 
And the first thing under that is to notice that it demonstrates that Jesus Christ had historical roots. We've uh, looked at it before, and, and hopefully you've read it in part of your Christmas preparations. But Galatians 4, uh, verses 4 through 5 says that when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And that passage of Scripture reminds us that God had a plan. He had a timetable for that plan to come into effect. And historians will tell you from that period of time, at that moment in time when Christ was born, that there was a certain sense of expectancy around the world, uh, of people expecting something to take place. Uh, those who had uh, religion in, in Greece and in Rome, they were wondering if there wasn't something that God was going to do with some kind of, of new ruler who would be born. And then, of course, the, the Hebrew people had the, the promise of the Messiah coming in. I don't think that they were looking for him and anticipating Jesus in the way that he came. But they, they had this, some kind of sense of anticipation, some kind of feeling that God is going to do something. Or those that didn't believe in God, they were thinking something must be going to happen that's going to take place. And it did in the birth of Christ because God was orchestrating all of that. And what Matthew wants us to understand is, is that Christ came as a real person. He had a family origin and he had roots. And so he had a family. He had identity. He gave him significance to know what he was. Secondly, it establishes Jesus as a member of the royal family of David. And that's, that, that's obvious in this writing to his Jewish congregation uh, that Matthew is writing about. He wanted to uh, remind any skeptical Jewish mind there that Jesus was the Messiah. God had said over a thousand years earlier that the Messiah would come from the line of David and somebody would always sit on that throne. That promises in 2 Samuel 7. Now at the time Jesus was born he wasn't the only one claiming to be the Messiah. And so people were wondering, well, how do we know that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, you kind of like do a background check on him. They said, let's go check his genealogy. And that's why Matthew wrote it the way that he did. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David is listed first. Why? Because it's tremendously significant for us to know, and particularly back then when Jesus was born, that Jesus is a direct descendant in the line of David to fulfill that promise that God gave to David. That somebody from his line would always sit on the throne. And the second one, of course, was to deal with the issue, is Jesus really a Jew? And that was important for the Hebrew mindset. Yes, he is a Jew. He's a son of Abraham. But most importantly, He's the son of David. And that was significant because if you remember the life and ministry of Jesus, all the way through, he was ridiculed about who he could, how, how could he be? How could he be the Messiah? Born in a stable, born to a, a, a poor carpenter and a peasant girl. How, how could he be the Messiah? They expected royalty. They expected glamour. They expected to be wowed by this Messiah. And so it was important that Matthew would say to them, look, go back and look at the documentation. Look at the record of his genealogy. He is from David's line. He is a Jew from Abraham's line. And you notice several things that, uh, that, that Matthew points out very, very boldly, really. His name is Jesus. He calls him that. Fulfillment of Matthew 1.21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He gives him the title Christ. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. 
But it's in reference to the fact that Christ means anointed one, a Messiah. And that's what Jesus came as and is, the Messiah, to fulfill all those promises. And then he is described as being the son of David and the son of Abraham. And in that he finds the affirmation of his identity and he finds his significance. So we learn that Jesus came from a long family line. He had roots. He was a real person. And we find that laid out for us in that form. Now the second thing though is kind of like what anybody does uh, when you're doing and checking up on your genealogy. You're going to find an incredible variety of people in the Messiah's genealogy. That's the second thing to understand. As I was a child growing up, uh, my mother and I lived at the old home place with uh, my grandmother, her mother. And my mother was one of eight children born into that family, seven who lived to adulthood. And as long as my grandmother was alive, everybody, all those children, those seven children, and their spouses, and their, grand, their children, and grandchildren, because there was a lot of difference in the ages uh, of, the, of the children born. I think 22 years difference from the oldest child to the youngest, my mother. And everybody was at our house for that time. And I even marveled, and it also came another time, and that was for my grandmother's birthday in August. Everybody was there to celebrate that, those two times. But it even amazed me then that I would look around and say, no, everybody came from the same father and mother, my grandfather and my grandmother. But everybody's so different. Well, when you look at your genealogy, you will find people who are different. You look at this genealogy here of Jesus. The family tree here of the Messiah. And you notice an incredible variety of people. I'm reminded of a story about a, a manager in a, in a plant that came up and obviously he recognized a, a new employee. And he came up to him and introduced himself as being the manager and he asked, what's your name? And he said, my name's John. And the manager said, well, let's, let's get something straight right here. He said, around here, everybody goes by his or her last name. Say, I'm Mr. Robertson, and you need to call me that. And he said, I'm going to call you by your last name, because if we get on a first name basis, that creates some friction perhaps between us here. Productivity might go down, and, and we might end up in some conflict. So if we always keep that hierarchy straight, now you remember, I'm Mr. Robinson, and I'll call you by your last name. So he said, what's your last name? And the guy kind of rather sheepishly, because I guess he had to be doing this all of his life, said, Darling, John Darling. And the manager looked at him and said, John, welcome to the factory. <laughs> so, when you look closely at the genealogy, you're going to find some darlings and you're going to find some disasters. And what does it tell us? Three things of importance. Number one, God uses the faithful. You look over this list of people in the master's genealogy, and I'm not going to elaborate on it, but I'm just going to pick out ten names. Abraham, you know, great things about Abraham. Isaac. Well-known character. Jacob had 12 sons, father of Joseph. From that came the 12 tribes of, of uh, Judah, uh, of uh, the Israelites. Then there was Ruth. You know that beautiful story of Ruth and Naomi and, and the relationship with Boaz. And David. We know about David. He went from being a shepherd to being the king, a man after God's own heart. And then there was Solomon, David's son, supposedly the wisest man that ever lived. Wrote all these proverbs and uh, all those things that were so wise. He didn't live by them. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Then there was King Asa. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Jehoshaphat. You remember that name? See, if we didn't know about Jehoshaphat, we wouldn't be saying, jumping Jehoshaphat. I don't know anybody ever says that anymore, but I used to hear that a lot when I was growing up. It said, he walked in the ways of his father David. Then there was Josiah, good King Josiah. 
He served the Lord with all of his heart, all of his life. Then there was Hezekiah. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. I think, we are, yeah, these are great faithful people. But look also at their life a little bit more closely. And some of them might have been sitting there thinking as I was rattling off those names. Yeah, but every one of them, practically every one of them, screwed up somewhere in their life, didn't they? And, and you're right. Abraham lied on several occasions about whether Sarah, his wife, was really his wife or, or her sister. And then he and Sarah got tired of waiting for God to bring the promised child into their life. So they took things in their own hand. He had a child through her handmaiden, right? So Abraham had some problems there. We know David committed adultery and murder. We know that Solomon uh, uh, was led astray by all of his wives and concubines because they were a different faith. Man should have had the wisest man in all the world. Should have known better than to have 300 wives. Asa bailed on God at the end of his life, and even Hezekiah became proud and was judged by God. So, even these people who were known as the great biblical characters, they had some things in their life that were failures where they messed up. And the lesson for us is that the good news of God's grace is for every one of us, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God uses the faithful. The second thing is God also uses failures. Somebody once said, um, Families are like fudge, mostly sweet, but with a few nuts. You know, you, you go back and look at your family and you'll realize you got a few nuts in there. In fact, you look real closely at yourself and it might be you. <laughs> then I'm reminded of another story about a family tracing their genealogy, and they're a very prominent family. And they uh, commissioned a professional biographer to record their family tree, but they gave him a warning about Uncle George. And they said, Uncle George it was, was a as a bad guy. In a drunken stupor, he committed murder. He went to the penitentiary, and he spent uh, end of his life in an electric chair. So, he said, you be very careful how you handle that. Well, when their genealogy report came back, this is what the biographer wrote about Uncle George. He said, Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as quite a shock. <laughs> now, when you look at these names in this genealogy, you're going to find some questionable characters. One of the first ones is Judah. An interesting thing is, is that it was Judah of the 12 tribes from which the Messiah would come. And Judah wasn't the best by any means. His son had married, well, several of his sons had married into uh, women from other religions. And when one son died, uh, that was supposed to be a, a promise that brother would take that place. And nobody was coming through with it. And so, the widow Tamar dis um, uh, disguised herself, and lo and behold, had an incestuous relationship with Judah. That's, that's a terrible thing for that to have happened. You know, his mistake was... He thought she was a prostitute. I guess he thought everything would have been okay. But it turned out to be his daughter-in-law. And then that became incest. Then you notice there's another name on there, Rahab. You remember the story of Rahab hiding the spies in Joshua when the spies were sent out? And then she, she lies to cover them up. And that was a good thing she did. The interesting thing is that poor Rahab never could shake her past. She's mentioned eight times in the Bible. And six times she's known as Rahab the prostitute. You know what that word in Hebrew means? Prostitute. 
That's, that's, and yet she's in this family lineage of the Messiah. Interesting, isn't it? And then Bathsheba, though you don't find her by name in that genealogy, she's called Uriah's wife. And she had an affair with David and gave birth to a son. They lost that child. But later she had Solomon. I think as we look at these people, I think we're going to be reminded again and again that God's plan of redemption came neither through perfect people nor for perfect people. There's other names on there. Ahaz was a notoriously wicked king. Rehoboam was the same thing. Manasseh was the same thing. They just were not necessarily good people. And isn't it interesting that the Savior of the world had these knots or bumps on his family tree? Yet this, this this is something that Matthew did not hide. Now, the reason that he shared all of that was to be completely honest and be transparent about it. But it wasn't to show us uh, what we have in common with those people. But it was to share with us uh, that which um, Christ came to share with us, and that is His grace. That God uses even faithless people or failures in life. They even look later on down the road in Jesus' ministry. And when the time came for His betrayal and arrest, all the disciples left Him. Only John was at a distance uh, at the cross. But later all of them were restored. They came back and all of them died a martyr's death for the cause of Christ. Then you think about uh, Paul. Paul was a murderer. And he was God's hand-pointed leader, chosen proclaimer to go and to proclaim the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. Now, third thing we look at is to say when we look at this that God also uses the forgotten. You know, you ever felt insignificant? You ever felt overlooked? Maybe other people get the limelight. Maybe other people get their name in print. You know, and maybe you feel slighted. Maybe you feel like you're not even noticed at all. Well, look at this list of people and see how many of them you remember. Some of them there towards the end. Let me ask you, what do you know about Hezron or Ram? Maybe Ram had a truck named after him. That's the only thing I can think of. But we don't know them. And a lot of these people listed here lived in that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Really people forgotten or unknown. But yet they're here. They're mentioned in the genealogy of David. And what that says to us is that we're really not forgotten. We're not insignificant. We are all important in the sight of God. And God is always watching over us. Psalm 139 reminds us of that. There's no place that we can go that God is not there with us and watching over us. And it doesn't matter how significant or insignificant your role is in the kingdom of God. You will not be forgotten by God. And He will use you if you're willing to be used. Now, let's look at the third major point and we wrap this up. What are the implications from looking at this genealogy of the Messiah? Well, first of all, remember Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, particularly a lot of Pharisees. You know, they were the legalists of that time. They wanted to know how many laws anybody had broken on the Sabbath, and they could really twist the laws around where nobody could live by. Not even themselves, but they were above the law, they thought. So, the first implication is that this is a message to self-righteous people. You know, don't go around with this self-righteous air and be judgmental of other people. I mean, look at this list of people 
that you could be so self-righteous and judgmental about, and yet they were there in, in the Messiah's family tree. You would think, good heavens, God wouldn't use people like that. But yet, that's how they traced His heritage. All kind of different people. So, this is a message to those who might be self-righteous. Get your nose out of the air and, and be humble before God. Everybody's in need of God's grace. Second thing is, it is a message about God's grace. You see, Jesus' family could have been portrayed as being the ideal family. For us older people, way back it could have been like the Cleavers on Leave it to Beaver. Or maybe like the Huxtables on the Bill Cosby show. But it looks more like the Simpson family when you look at it in reality, doesn't it? But the message is, is that God's grace is for all of us. All of us are like Uncle George in a lot of different ways. But the message that Jesus came to proclaim is God's grace. And the mission statement under which He ministered was that He had come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's all of us. Rick Warren who said, the worse you are, the better candidate you are for the grace of God. We can all identify with that, can't we? Grace extends to the faithful, the failures, and the forgotten. Because you can see that grace twinkling and glowing through the Master's Christmas tree. Then the third thing to remember in this is, this is a message about acceptance into God's family. You don't find your name listed there. I don't find mine listed there. But the reality is that through Jesus Christ, and particularly John 1.12 tells us this, that by faith in Jesus Christ, those who believe in Him, He gives us the right to become children of God. And that means we, by faith in Christ, are members of God's family. Our names might not show up here on the genealogy list. But by faith in Christ, accepting this Christ child as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the forgiver of your sins, as the leader of your life. If you simply do that to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name. You believe in His name? He gave the right to become children of God. See, it's the gift of Christmas the gift that God gives us, the gift of grace, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life. That's the gift God gives to us and we have to claim it. We have to believe that He is the Messiah. We have to believe that He is God in the flesh. We have to believe that He died on the cross for our sins. We have to believe that that's an adequate sacrifice in the eyes of God. And when we claim those things, then we find that peace in our own life and our relationship with God. And we are a part of God's family. The Bible says we're heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing what God offers to us? That's what He comes and offers us at Christmas. So, this Christmas once again as we celebrate the birth of Christ. Think about this family tree of the Messiah. And ask yourself the question, am I in God's family? And see, if you've never received that gift, this is the year maybe that you will receive that gift. Open that gift and experience the joy of your sins being forgiven, and knowing that you're in the family of God. Father, we rejoice in this wonderful season in the ultimate gift of love and grace that you gave to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. And as we look at uh, all these people who are listed in his genealogy, 
that, that we marvel at the people that you use and, and how you can even use failures because we've all fallen short of the glory of God and we failed you. And Father, we also realize that we are not uh, forgotten. We are not insignificant. We're important to you. You know the number of hairs upon our head. And so we want to claim that significance today. And most importantly, we want to be in a relationship with you and be in this royal family of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that for anyone who's not yet made that decision, that you will give them that conviction today of their need for Christ as they confess their sins and embrace Christ as Savior. And we ask this, Father, in the powerful name of Christ, whose birth we celebrate.